Hello, everyone. Welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers. And as you can hear, I'm at the tail end of a pretty nasty virus. Uh, Terry and I contracted something from the niece that you'll hear about in this episode, uh, whose name is Summer. Uh, she was visiting a few weeks back, and just after her visit, which was wonderful, we both uh, took a dip. Um, it, not COVID, we tested negative for COVID, but some kind of flu-like upper respiratory problem that has left us pretty uh, wiped out. Um, and that's why there's been a bit of a pause in the podcast, but we definitely both feel like we're on the upswing and we're getting back to our classes and I'm getting back to the podcast. And in this episode, I'm, I'm reviewing uh, a story or, or a vignette from my niece's visit, which I'm hoping when you listen to it, you'll you'll appreciate that I'm trying to point out how there are certain biases that are we all possess in our mind, namely one called uh, attribution error, and how this bias where we, you know, uh, judge bad behavior in somebody else is due to their disposition, but when we do the same behavior, we excuse that behavior because of conditions or circumstances how that kind of bias uh, really can be one of the factors that gets us swept away by views and leads us to causing suffering for ourselves or others or conflicts can arise out of this, these kind of biases in our life. Um, and this is all rooted in the Buddha's understandings around how views function as a flood in our life uh, and we can get swept away. So I hope you enjoy today's talk and I just want to put you on notice that uh, if we, we have a suite of short introductory workshops to yin yoga, traditional Chinese medicine, and qigong. There's a link for that in the show notes. We also have wonderfully popular uh, yin yoga teacher trainings, 50-hour self-paced on-demand teacher trainings in yin yoga, ch traditional Chinese medicine, meditation. Um, and we also uh, host an online practice community of yin yoga-based teachers and students integrating yang yoga, yin yoga, qigong, and meditation for a comprehensive integral life practice, all geared towards waking up, growing up, and cleaning up. And you can hear in this talk, I'm giving my own share around growing up and, and cleaning up. Um, so given my the, the state of my voice, I'm going to cut it short today. Um, wish you my best. I hope you're doing well. Uh, there's a lot of pretty nasty virus going around. There's lots of nasty virus in our body politic, in our world at large. There's pretty terrifying weather patterns, lots to be rattled and unmoored by. And uh, in the face of all that, we hope your practice uh, is not obviously going, not going to remedy these, these larger uh, conditions, but that your practice is able to root you in the freedom of your own being and help you engage to the best of your ability with the circumstances of your life. So without further ado, here's today's talk, Anatomy of a Cookie Monster. We're, I want to pick up where we left off last time we met two weeks ago. and. Um, I'm doing something that I, I, I try to avoid doing, which is to uh, announce or pre-announce the, the title and theme of a talk before I get there. Um, 
in general, I, I really like to wake up and in the morning and listen back through everything we've been talking about together and try to offer a fresh uh, reflection on practice and the Dharma. Um, but there was something about our last share, our last um, session together, where I think some themes were coming up that would be helpful to uh, go move through and think through and feel through and practice with um, in a more maybe measured or uh, frame by frame sort of way. So just to recap, uh, in our last session two weeks ago, I shared a story about uh, a visit of my sister, of one of my sisters and her daughter. Their names are Becca. She's my sister. Her daughter's name is Summer. Um, they live in Brooklyn, New York. And they came to Maine for the first time to visit a few weeks back. And I shared in my story how on the second day of their visit, and I'm recapping this part, um, you heard my perspective. And my perspective was on the second day of their visit, um, after a day of being out of the house and visiting uh, with my sister's friends, we had come back and it was about 4 or 4.30 in the afternoon and we were putting together uh, what we needed to do for an early dinner. Um, but around that time, I described myself as feeling peckish, which is a, a word I borrow from um, my time in Ireland and friends in England. Peckish, just to describe a bit of an itchy little hunger in me. And um, in response to my feeling peckish, I described how I noticed a bag of chocolate-covered graham crackers on the kitchen island. And I, in my, in my narrative, I said, I picked up the bag and said, everyone okay if I have one? Or everyone okay if I eat the last cookie here? And um, there was some silence, as I told it. As I also told it, I, I got the sense that the my sister and my partner, Uncle Terry, were sort of communicating, trying to communicate to me a silent, no, don't do it, don't do it, because this, this bag of cookies was a bag of cookies that my sister brought from Brooklyn and ostensibly... My, my three-year-old niece um, had some claim to them. And after asking if it was okay if I ate one, uh, I, I narrated that my niece uh, started to walk towards me with her hand outstretched, indicating that she wanted it. And that in that moment, I took it upon myself to, I, I identified a, a a, a, mo a moment for wisdom, a moment of wisdom to teach the, the value of sharing. So I snapped the cookie in half. 
And at that point, when I snapped the cookie in half to share it, she, my niece pivoted on her heels and walked away from me and proceeded to give me the silent treatment for an hour or two. And I said more beyond that, but that's the, that's the bit, that's the chunk of the story that I wanted to share or to look at more closely. And I'm trying to give you the salient details of my telling of it. And what was interesting to me is after that telling, I there was comments in our discussion and there was comments that I received and feedback I received from many of you uh, over email or at the yin class, um, which more or less boiled down to um, a sharing of a view that I did the right thing that it was the right thing to do to teach the, the the importance of sharing at that time. And even though it was uncomfortable, sometimes you have to take that discomfort because if you don't face the discomfort and, and do what's right, uh, I could have been guilty of helping shape the development of a brat, a long, young, young little brat. And then after um, that session two weeks back, I, you know, I, after I sign off and waved to you guys, I, I, I stepped downstairs and reconnect with my partner, Terry. And um, the, if you weren't there, the reason I'm calling her Uncle Terry from time to time is because that's what Summer would refer to her as, Uncle Terry. So I stepped down and I talked to Terry and she said, oh, that was an interesting version of the story. <laughs> That was an interesting version. And I said, oh, did you think I was unfaithful to the facts? Did you think I wasn't true to what happened? She's like, it was certainly a bit distorted from my perspective. And so in the re intervening two weeks, I've, I've tried to uh, interview Terry enough to get a sense of what, what she felt like were the discrepancies. And she said, and I'm just trying to line by line it, like frame by frame, compare what I said to what her perspective was. So when I said I was peckish, she said, yeah, it wasn't that you were just peckish. You were in your, what we call your Hoover mode. Hoovers are vacuums. I was in Hoover mode. I was, I was definitely hungry before dinner, kind of moving through the kitchen, grabbing any snack-like item or any small food item that I could and just shoveling it into my mouth. And sometimes that's crackers or chips or you know, mixed nuts or vegetable sticks or whatever's on hand. And when she said that, I realized, yeah, there really wasn't that much to Hoover <laughs> for me to Hoover in the house at that time. So that cookie really stood out to me. And then she said, um, you didn't quite say, everyone okay if I eat this? You said, anyone want one? Does anyone want one? Which carries a very different feel in a way. You could say I'm, I'm even offering it. And what I failed to say in my narrative, which Terry said was uh, part of her experience, was that after I said, anyone want one, my sister said, that is the last one. 
that's the last one. And there was sort of a knowing look between Terry and my sister that Terry shared. That's knowing look like he's not really going to eat the last one, is he? We, I mean, we, my sister's kind of silently commuting. We brought these. He's not going to just take that, is he? But Terry knows me too well. He's <laughs> like, oh, yeah, he'll do that. And it was at the time that um, my sister said, there's only one left, that Terry noticed that was when Summer took notice. That when her mom said, there's only one cookie left. The three-year-old niece took notice that her cookie was going about to be uh, vanished in a way, or hoovered. So just between these two narratives, in the first one, the way I tell it, I was communicating from a view that I was an agent of, I was a, I was a, I was a voice of wisdom teaching necessary values of sharing, even if it was uncomfortable. In Terry's narrative, her view was, I was not an agent of wisdom. It wasn't the right time. It wasn't the right thing to do at that moment in those conditions. And what I want to add here is Terry's view is actually more comprehensive than even the way I shared it just now. She, Terry, was, had taken in, as I think anyone that's raised children might, Terry's view had taken in all the conditions of the day, all the conditions of the previous few days that might be leading up to how individuals might be interacting within this moment in the kitchen before dinner at four o'clock with one remaining cookie. And so some of what I'm about to say was included in Terry's perspective, but after sharing my narrative and after thinking through Terry's narrative, I wanted to imagine how summer, I want to exercise, move into an exercise of cognitive empathy, trying to imagine how summer might see what was happening. And the conditions that I could put, I would, I would, I would think are relevant to putting on the table, or one is that the day before um, she had woken up at her dad's house in Brooklyn. That early morning, there was a handoff between the father to my sister because they're not together and they don't really get along very well. And then Summer was brought to the airport that morning and flown to Maine, travel disruption, mealtime disruption. When she arrived, it was clear that she was struggling with a sickness of some sort of cold virus. Maybe it was the thing that we picked up. The next day, the day of the famous cookie incident, and the next day, my sister brought 
summer to my sister's friend's house in, in Brunswick, where they visited with friends and family there. And when we arrived to pick them up at the friend's house, uh, we learned that the small dog of the family had been nipping at summer, like just moving, like just they, the dog had to be sort of held and restrained because it kept going over to her and nipping at her. So I imagined all of that in the mix, fatigue, travel fatigue, some sickness, facing a dog biting, trying to bite at you as a three-year-old. And then who knows when she had lunch. She could have been peckish. She could have been hungry too. And she was at her table just, I think, doing like some playing a game or drawing when her uncle, a relatively uh, an unknown entity to her at this point, just a, or a new entity, a relative stranger, her uncle standing at the kitchen island saying, anyone want one? And he's holding up, not a cookie that was purchased for the house, not a cookie that he or his partner had purchased, but holding up one of Summer's, one, hold, literally holding up Summer's last cookie of a bag that she brought from Brooklyn. And when he offers to share, she says, why would I want to, you know, I'm imagining, why would she want to share something that was hers and to begin with? Like, who am I? Who is he to demand that this thing be shared? So in, when I, when I think about it from when I, when I gained feedback from Terry, which was very helpful, and when I expanded my view of what was going on and tried to take into Summer's view, the anatomy of the cookie monster became clear. Guilty as charged. Now, how does this all relate? I know, and, and, and not a, few, a couple of you emailed me saying, you know, when you gave that talk, I was like, what, why is he just telling, narrating the story about his niece and sister's visit? What does this have to do with the Dharma? And I think it, the reason I'm using it, this story, this example, is that on one level, it's pretty simple. It's a simple story. And it's a simple story in which we can all reflect on how views function how views operate, how views shape perception, views shape opinion and judgments, and how actions spring or come, flow out of view. And I'm not, I don't, I want to be clear, if you took my side and said, oh, Josh did the right thing, teaching the, the importance of sharing. It's not that sharing isn't important. I, I fully believe, and I know 
everyone probably holds somewhere in their heart that sharing is important. That's the question of time, place, our conditions. Is, is this the time? But in the view that sharing is important, um, both I had and other people had a, an idea that if this lesson wasn't taught, it would enforce or reinforce a, a kind of dispositional personality in my niece. You know, that she cries to get what she wants. And I should say, and just another thing here, even though she didn't want to share with me, she did not cry. She did not cry. She just went back to the table and, and gave me the silent treatment. And then the more I thought about it, I thought that's pretty remarkable that she didn't have a temper tantrum. But my, I get the point I want to make is that, um, or and invite everyone to reflect on is that, based on my first story, my 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 telling of the story, um, which had a limited set of. In, uh, data it had a just a few bits of detail to it. It's very easy to come to a view that something needs to be done, or that a view of you know what is the disposition of my niece, or what is the disposition of my sister and Terry, or what is the disposition of me. And it reminded me of a another example that speaks to this. About a year ago, when my eldest niece, the niece that's struggling with cancer, before her diagnosis, she came uh, with my mother to visit Terry and me in Maine. And on that visit, I was playing lots of games of backgammon with Adelia. And there was a point on one afternoon we were playing a game and I noticed that the way Adelia was moving her hand to move the pieces, that she was getting sloppy, that she wasn't counting clearly as, as she could. I knew she wasn't um, taking care to place the pieces on the right spot. There was sort of some sloppiness. And she was giggling about it. And I was a bit overtired and it was annoying me. And I said something like, come on, pay more attention, be more careful. And there was an edge in my tone. I got strict because I thought she was being sloppy or just being careless in a way that um, I didn't appreciate. Kids can do that, can't they? I, and and I don't want to sound like, um, just to remind everybody, at another point in my life, I taught kindergarten uh, for a couple of years in Taiwan. Um, and I've worked with children 
from the ages of three, four, five, six, seven, in the kindergartens there, all the way into their uh, cram schools uh, that, that uh, involve ages from, say, seven to 16, 17. So I've, I've had work with, I've, I've experienced teaching and working with children. And I knew it's important to, you know, not let uh, sloppiness get get out of hand. But that moment came back to haunt me the week later when Adelia had gone home. The next week, Adelia felt, fell sick. She was taken to the ER. And two days later, an MRI showed a tumor in her brain that was, uh, which I then learned was, was very likely the cause of why her vision had becoming, was beginning a, a, a double type of vision, diplopia. I hadn't known about the, the vision difficulty. I hadn't known that, I didn't know that she was getting headaches. But after the diagnosis, my sister and mother shared, oh yeah, she's been talking lately about her vision. She's been talking about having headaches. Could all be related to coordination. And there I was playing backgammon that afternoon, irritated because I saw a dispositional trait of sloppiness in a child that had yet to be diagnosed with a brain tumor. <clears throat> so views, stories, Contemporary um, is a field of psychology that looks at how cognitive bias or biases shape our perception of things. And there's one particular bias that I think is alive in all of these stories. And that's the bias known as fundamental attribution error. Fundamental attribution error describes, and there's a lot of research on this now, describes how when someone's behavior, when, someone's, when, when someone behaves in a way that you perceive as negatively, and they are outside of your self-defined tribe and there's negative behavior and they're outside of your tribe attribution error tends to project disposition to their behavior now that's some jargon if your work colleague and if if the work colleague you have that you don't like shows up late attribution error says they're late because they're lazy. They're dispositionally lazy. That's why they're late. But of course, when you show up late to work, 
It's not because you're lazy. It's because there is traffic. It's because you've been getting over a cold or it's something that happened, you know, with your child or your dog that held you up at home before you could get to the, get to the, uh, get to the car, get into the, into the commute. So you became late due to causes and conditions. When someone else is late, it's because they're lazy. If you're in the checkout line and there's a parent ahead of you with a child who's crying and screaming, they're doing it because the parent doesn't know how to properly discipline the child. The child's a tyrant. When it's you in the checkout line with your child crying, melting down, it's because they're hungry, they're overtired, they're sick, they're not feeling well. I had fundamental attribution error, both with Adelia, about her sloppiness of playing backgammon, She's being careless to the disposition. It wasn't because of causes and conditions. It was because of a personality. When Summer didn't want to share, my attribution error was like, she hasn't learned the importance of sharing yet. And what her, her reluctance to share wasn't because of fatigue, sickness, a dog biting her all day, hunger. And I'm specifically sharing these, I hope are simple vignettes that illustrate this point. Because if we can see them in a microcosm of a relationship between an uncle and his nieces. We might be able to see them at play in our own, and you might be able to see them at play in your own relationships. You might be able to see them at play in things you read, movies you watch. I'll briefly make a, a this is not a, a movie club, obviously, but there are two movies that Terry and I watched recently that I thought beautifully illustrate and exemplify these problems of attribution error. Uh, one is the French film up for several Oscars called Anatomy of a Fall. And the other is um, an American film called You Hurt My Feelings. I won't say more about them, but if you're interested, check those out. But the views we have, particularly when we have a view of behavior being born by disposition, from how I see it now, is that it, views of disposition 
they're voting that way because they are worst case evil they're acting that way because they're evil they're acting that way because they're ignorant they're acting that way because they're stupid they're acting that way because they're violent by nature all dispositional descriptions and when we describe and view things through the lens of disposition we don't take in a view of causes and conditions we don't take in a view of context we can't take in a broader context because we are sort of in a way our whole frame collapses to a simplistic story of that's just the way they are and ajahn sachito in the in the book um parami that i have shared a few times as a as a free pdf that you can find um in the newsletters and um if if you haven't found it yet uh, I'll ha happy to email it to you. Just send me a note. But in this book that I'm I'm going to be drawing some themes and reflections from, he describes uh, views as a as a flood, as one of the one of the kinds of floods that carries us away. says this flood is difficult to check because views are the benchmarks we have for our reality and our actions we all used abstractions to define things in accordance with certain perspectives and there is a degree of usefulness in talking about belgians or film directors or carthusians you know, labels. There's a certain value in labels to, to refer to things. Here's, here's the essential point. But, he says, it's in the blind adherence to those concepts as ultimate definitions of an individual that the flood arises. Blind adherence to those concepts as ultimate definitions that the flood arises if it is blindly adhered to eat if it is blindly adhered to even the view that all views are problems creates problems as that condemns any relative statement as invalid and and then what can be said about anything no he continues no it's the adherence to any view not the view itself that is the crux of the problem the adherence to the view the flood of views is this intoxication and adherence an ongoing mental action that cuts off those who believe a view from quote the rest of the troublemakers read that last sentence again the flood of views is this intoxication and adherence 
an ongoing mental action that cuts off those who believe of you from the rest of the troublemakers. Us versus them. Me versus them. It's the adherence to the view. So we're going to sit now. We're going to come, transition into a meditation. And if I were to try to boil a practice approach down to help us come to see views, to see how views operate in our, in our heart and mind, One thing is just to gain, to get a perspective, to get a, a sense of when are we literally being swept away by a view. And we talk about the monkey mind getting lost in thought. But thoughts are sort of the, the crystallization of particular views. So when we sit, the simplicity of sitting, of, of meditation, and the way that this, the meditation practice becomes an experiment to explore how views flood us, how views sweep us away, and how we can wake up to that and, and start to stand on something more stable. The practice is incredibly simple. Encouragement is to Relax. Begin by placing your attention, letting your attention rest on something physical, tangible, primary in your experience. And it could be your hands resting on your lap or your breathing. And then when you realize you've been swept away, to not go to war with that, which is just a view that you shouldn't have views. But when you realize you've been swept away, which I sat earlier today and I caught myself at least a dozen or hundred times, when you catch yourself being swept away, to relax back and unhook your mind from that flood. To not get involved with it. It, does, it. You don't have to stop it. But to let your thoughts flow with a sense of listening deeply to what's happening without getting involved. And the way you'll know you can do that is if you're able to Maintain connection to your body as you're listening. The body becomes the foundation. Embodied presence becomes the foundation from which we feel the flood of views. And in listening, um, you might hear all sorts of ideas like, oh, the, you know, things come to you. They're just like um, wind gusts 
like, like dreams of wind gusts come in. Something about this person, something about that person, this group over here, those people over there. And you can hear, when you listen to your thinking, how the thinking mind itself is what cuts up the world between me and not me. That boundary, that border, that division is only generated, and this is something to test, but it's generated by the thoughts themselves. And you can only know that when you are resting in a more unified position of embodied presence open to what is. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that story, and I hope uh, it opens up some exploration and reflection for you in your own practice. I'd love to hear what you think about it. What do you think of attribution error? Does it make sense to you? Do you see it in your own life? Do you experience it in how you relate to others or how you perceive others? Love to hear your thoughts. You can shoot me an email at josh at joshsummers.net. Um, and just again, to signal what's in the show notes, we have a, a link to a free copy of my ebook, The What, Why, and How of Yin Yoga, as well as links to workshops and trainings in Yin Yoga, Qigong, meditation. Um, we're an on demand uh, educational, continuing education uh, platform the Yin Yoga School, the Summer School of Yin Yoga, the Riverbird Sangha. We wake up, grow up, clean up together, and um, we have a lot of fun doing it. So if you're interested in, in participating, check out what we have to offer in the show notes. Thanks for your listening. And um, again, stay safe, stay strong, keep practicing. And I've got a whole bunch of interviews coming soon, which I'm really excited to share with you. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening today, and I'll see you soon.